just thank you for your love and your patience. We thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit that's going to be with us today. And, Lord, that you're going to just erase everything I say and let the Holy Spirit speak through the Word of God to our hearts and to teach us, Lord, what you have us to learn. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Be with us now, we pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. As you're turning over to 2 Kings chapter 5, you know, the pastor's been talking about uh, insignificant people in the Bible. And the Lord laid in my heart to talk about and focus on a slave girl. Uh, so that's where we're going to go today. I want to review first the history a little bit of, of Israel. And it, it's so true that uh, back when it said God chose Israel, he chose the most stubborn, stiff-necked people in the world to be his people. Now we see that even carry out in the history of Israel. We see here right off the bat the Jews, the Jewish nation, kept struggling to be one nation. In fact, they split real quickly into two kingdoms. At the death of Solomon, you thought, you know, he was such a great king, and he was, but toward the end, he, he, he fell into uh, disfavor with God because he started following other things and doing other things. So when they come down to uh, his harsh treatment of the people, and the northern tribes come back when he died, and his son was supposed to take over, and they come in and said, wait a minute, we're gonna, let's look at this. Let's look at this. Let's see if we're going to follow you. You tell us how you're going to reign over us. Well, he come back and he, he listened to the foolish young people, the advisors, and they said, oh, no, you're fine. Just go at it. Well, that was the wrong thing. But the people were looking for relief. They were looking for a chance to have some hope. Well, immediately then Jeroboam stepped up and said, well, that's all right. I'll be king of the northern kingdom. Took ten tribes, only left two for the southern kingdom, for David, Benjamin, and Judah. Rehoboam then said, well, let's go fight. Let's get it back. Let's restore it. And the prophet came to him and he said, no, no, this is the Lord's doing. Let's get on with it. Well, Jeroboam had a problem when he started his kingdom on the north side because all the people were Jews and they were used to going down to the temple to worship. That was what was prescribed by law. And so he was afraid that the that the Jews were going to, he's going to lose authority over these people and they were going to all just migrate back down to the south and they were just going to reject him and go back to to, uh, to the south, to Judah, as their, as their king. So instead he built two different temples in the northern kingdom. One is in Bethel and one at Dan. And he put golden calves of all things in those. And he says, this is the place where you're going to worship. It was amazing by the time we get to Second Kings, that there was any devout Jews in the northern kingdom because he had so much government oppression to follow after his new religions. Several kings succeeded Jeroboam until the end of Jerome, who ruled the northern kingdom. And that's where we find ourselves now. Aram was another name for Syria. They had constant battles with the northern kingdom. They also had Assyria on the north of them starting to challenge Syria. It was a new empire that was developing. And later on, we see that Assyrians were used in the judgment of God's people. And it appears where Nahum himself set himself apart as a great warrior, a valiant warrior, who's probably in those times of trying to de defend Syria against Assyria, and maybe even his, his exploits into Israel. Well, now we get into the story. 
if they'd have had internet and news or paper or whatever, uh, this would probably have been the headlines. Breaking news, the Syrians raided and attacked settlements along the eastern border of Samaria. Multiple people were taken by the raiding party to be sold as slaves. One family lost their daughter. The, the father states that they're grieving the loss of their daughter, but they know that God Jehovah is still on the throne, so they will put their trust in him for her safety. The worst nightmare parents could ever experience. But we can assume for later behavior of this daughter that they were strong in their faith in the Almighty, and under great oppression by the government, they stayed faithful to her Jewish beliefs. Nightmare to Miracle. That's a terrible name for a sermon, isn't it? Nightmare to Miracle. Here's a case where what Satan meant for tragedy, instead God turns around for victory. Little did the raiding party know that they were just going to be spreading the seeds of faith all over the place. Since Nahum was a commander of the whole army, he had authorized raiding parties to go into Israel and to plunder the villages and to take slaves. Throughout this time period, it sounds really awful to us, but through that time period, even clear back to David, it was common. That's what they did. They had raiding parties. Uh, not not party party like, you know, you. Uh, I mean, they would actually invade other countries and take plunder and spoil from those countries. And a lot of times that's how they paid for the standing army that they had. In this case, captives were taken back to Syria. Now, often the leaders would, would share in that bounty. They encouraged it, because they made money off of this, too. And they also got slaves. These slaves were sold, and then either they, they got slaves or they got the money off of it. This is probably where the young girl, by divine appointment, ended up in the house of Naaman's wife as a servant. What do we know about this young girl? Well, if you look at verses 2 and 3, it's interesting as you lay that open and you, you seek out what, what God has done in this young lady's life, you find first, she seemed to make the best of the situation. Hand was upon, God's hand was upon this girl and placed her in the household of Nahum's wife as a servant. Second, it was unusual for a servant to talk to her mistress. That was unheard of. Servants are to be seen. They're not to be they're seen and not heard. But she was quite bold in talking to her mistress, which probably indicates that her character and her personality were such that acquired favor with both her mistress and her master. Thirdly, we see her upbringing by her parents had cemented a strong knowledge of God and his ways, and with an understanding that the God they served cared about his people. They also a God who would intervene in the lives of his people for their good. That was completely different from the gods of the northern kingdom and the gods of Syria. That wasn't their God. Fourth, she had some personal experience with the prophet Elisha. She knew, she knew without hesitation that God worked through Elisha and would heal people. Fifth, she was compassionate, cared deeply about her master's well-being. This motivated her to compel the commander to seek a meeting with Elisha, even though that meant going back into a hostile country. Sixth, the amazing fact is that the commander listened to this young girl's advice and be, to be motivated to go before the king to get permission to go to Israel and look for the prophet. And lastly, we see that God was doing a work through this young girl that the king not only approved Nahum's 
going, but he sent official correspondence to the king of Israel to accommodate Nahum. Oh, this letter. The prospect of being healed was monumental to Nahum. He was excited. He arranged a great entourage to go with him into Israel to take care of him. Probably a sizable company of soldiers, servants, supplies, pack animals, chariots, and horses, all just to attend him on this trip. And plus, he was going into a hostile country. He didn't want to take any chances. As he approached the capital of Samaria, I'm sure that it was a tremendous stir among the officials in the army there. What was the purpose of his state visit? Now, the letter of Nahum, letter of Nahum presented to the king was totally upended the king. Just blew him away. This is the message that the king of Syria sent to the king of Israel. With this letter, I'm sending you the servant Nahum, and you, so you, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Whew. The king was horrified. He tore his robes. Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? What does this fellow send me, this man, to be cured of leprosy? He must be trying to pick a quarrel with me. But it's interesting that Elisha, if you read back through the chapters, Elisha always had his ear on what was going on in the kingdom, and his ear open to what was happening in the king's presence. When he heard that the king had torn his robes, he sent a message to the king, Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and we'll know, he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. And with really great relief, the king sent Nahum and his entourage on to Elisha's house to get rid of him. Instead of finding Elisha in a great big mansion, Nahum come to a very simple home. I think Nahum, in all of his grandeur, felt offended and out of control with this whole situation. He'd come, he'd come prepared to lavish upon the man who would heal him tremendous wealth. It was believed, and then somebody calculated this, and I don't know how they did that, but they calculate that there's about $265,000 worth of silver and as much as up to $3 million worth of gold that he brought, plus 10 new changes of clothes for the man. He was prepared. He wanted healed. But then he was only met by a mere servant. Elisha didn't even do the courtesy of presenting himself to the commander of all the Syrian army. How insulting, how humiliating. The commander was furious. He had no incantations, he had no ceremony, he made no spectacle at all. Then he was told by the servant, go wash seven times in the muddy Jordan River. He found this most revolting, the idea of going into the muddy Jordan River to take a bath. He said, we have much better rivers in Syria. Why couldn't I have just stayed there and, and, and taken baths and been healed? As the proud Nahum was storming off, his servants spoke to him. If the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you wars should be clean? Nahum had been prepared to do something monumental, something difficult, something expensive, maybe even dangerous to satisfy and to be healed. But the, the prophet asked him for a very simple thing. Shouldn't Nahum just at least give it a try? Bathing in the Jordan was easy. And finally, they persuaded their master that he should try the prescribed cure. So Nahum re re relented. He wore seven times in the Jordan River. A 
to his amazement, Elisha's cure worked. His flesh was restored and become clean like that of a young boy. Naaman was cured of his leprosy. I think he was so excited he probably hugged everybody, including the donkeys. His servants and soldiers stood in wonder. How could this be? A leper completely healed right in front of their eyes. It's only when Nahum swallowed his pride and was obedient that he experienced the miracle. His attitude toward Elisha changed. He no longer thought of himself as the commander of the great Syrian army. He realized he was just but a servant. Now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He would learn that this God, the God of the universe, the creator, the sustainer, sovereign of all, all over, all-powerful, all-knowing, and loving, he was going to learn about a new God. These are the same struggles we have when God asks us to do something sometimes. Our pride stands in the way, and we don't really want to humble ourselves. We're not ready to do that so that we can fulfill God's desire. James 4, 6 says, Therefore it said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In an effort to thank Elisha, he offered you great gifts of silver and gold. And as the custom was, he brought also ten brand new changes of clothes. I'm sure Naaman was taken back when Elijah would not accept anything from him. Elisha couldn't take anything for the miracle because it was God who did this. It was God who healed him. Now we start to see evidence of Naaman's heart being changed. It was believed at that time that the gods were connected to the land. Remember we were talking about you know, defeating them because their gods were the god of the plain or the gods of the mountains. Well, here this same idea comes to, to uh, Naaman. So he wanted to take part of Israel back home with him. He asked for all the dirt the two mules could carry. Then he would pray and make his sacrifices on that patch of earth so that he could be heard. He was concerned that he would anger God if he didn't do something like that. But Nahum's heart was also troubled. He asked, he knew what he was going to have to do when he get back, gets back there to the king. So he asked forgiveness in advance. One of his duties was to accompany the, accompany the king into the temple of Ramon and bow down and assist the king in worship of this foreign god. Elisha's response was cool and peace. He knew God would look at the heart of Nahum and know his faith to be pure. What a beautiful account how God's parents raised a young girl whose heart was tender toward God to pursue a miracle for the commander of the Israel Syrian army, I'm sorry, the very one who had ordered her capture and enslavement. It's important, the importance of raising children in a godly home the parents are consistent livingly, consistently living out their personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church and will be the church to come. Spurgeon knew this, and in many of his sermons, he addressed this. He said, train up a child in the way he shall go, but be sure that you go that way yourself. Passing your faith to the next generation is the most powerful thing you can do. And the perseverance of how you walk with Jesus is the most important. To pass it on to your children, who will then pass it on again, hopefully, to their children. The faith of parents shared with the daughters allows
allowed her to be the first and the youngest missionary to Syria. Her testimony spoke to the hearts of Naaman and his wife. They responded to God's message and experienced not only a miracle of healing from the leprosy, but were brought into a relationship with the one true God. But the story doesn't end there. Elisha's servant ran after Naaman as he was leaving. My master is too easy on Naaman. This man is great wealthy. He wouldn't miss a little. So Gehazi was upset with Elisha for not accepting from Naaman what he had brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi lies to Naaman, saying Elisha had sent him to obtain gold and two sets of clothes for two young men who were the company of the prophets. And then he hides this stuff that he obtained in the house. And then, of course, he acts very nonchalant when he comes back to Elisha. Elisha said, well, where have you been? Oh, I haven't been anywhere. I haven't done anything. Big mistake. Elisha already knew that Gehazi's sin and his cover-up. Now judgment for his sin. He tells him that the same leprosy that Naaman was healed from will now rest upon him. Now, it's interesting you'd think that that would be the end that you hear of Gehazi. Gehazi. But if you read a few chapters down, he appears in the presence of the king of Israel and stands and gives testimony to the work of Elisha in the life of the, of the Shu, uh, Shu, I can't even say it now. The, the lady that lost her son uh, and brought her back to life. And so he bore witness. So God wasn't done with him. He just was cursed him with the, with the uh, leprosy. What life lessons can we take from this story? How do we respond Jews had all this blessings and God's involvement in their lives, which is best 
that's best. Uh, Romans 3, 18, 9 through 18. He says there, there's, there's no difference. Not at all. Everybody is charged just equally. Both Jews and Greeks are under sin. That's written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throats are open, cut with graves, and they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed, shed blood. Their paths of ruin and misery. The way of peace they do not know. And there's no fear of God before them. He's saying that to all of us. That's the condition we were in before we come to know Jesus. That is the condition we were in. Romans 3, 23 and 25. He says, There's no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This God that we serve is a God of love and mercy. He's just. He's just. But he's a God of mercy. I love this portion in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. For do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And everybody here would say, Amen. Do not be deceived, neither sexual immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men of practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greeters, greedy, nor drunkards, nor revivals, nor swindlers will inherit the God. And there's a big amen, right? Well, listen to what he says next. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit. Not a one of us can hold our head up and say, hey, look at me. Because we're all sinners. We are all in that boat that needs God's grace. The next one is, how do we embolden our young people to share their faith by our lives? They want to see real Christians living out Jesus every day. They, they get tired of it. I'm sure you do too in your walk. And you're trying to you know, stay, stay faithful to Jesus and on fire for Jesus, but you look around and see a lot of fakes. A lot of people who say they're Christians, but man, their life is so far off. Most of you know that one of my favorite verses is James 1.22. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, because you're just deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's seen. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and he perseveres, being no longer just a hearing who forgets, a hearer who forgets, but a one who acts upon what he's heard, he will be blessed in what he does. As we look at this young girl in history, what helped make her dynamic for God's work? Scripture says, follow God's example. Therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be a hint of sexual immorality, any kind of impurity or greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. 
nor should there be obscenity, false, foolish talk, or coarse joking. Those are completely out of place. There should be thanksgiving. For this we can be sure. No immoral, pure, greedy person, such a person is actually an adulterer, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ our God. He goes on in Romans 12, 2, he says, Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and his pleasing and his perfect will. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a workman who does not need not to be ashamed, but who correctly handles the word of truth. Again, Paul admonishes Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you, you know, whether you're young or old or, or, or whatever your situation is, don't let them look down on you, but set an example to the believers both in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And he goes on to talk to Titus. He says, In everything, set them an example of doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity and seriousness. Again, in Philippians 3.17, Join together in following his example, Paul's example, he was telling us. Brothers and sisters, just as you have made us a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. He's saying, look to those people who live the faith, who are faithful to God's call, who are in the Word of God, and who are prayer warriors. Look to those people and follow their example and their faithfulness to Jesus. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy and all the mercy and all that He has done for you, the least thing you can do is offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. And lastly, guard your heart. Don't get too pride, prideful. Don't get too arrogant. Every one of us have a soft spot. Gehazi, he found out after he'd been a faithful servant to Elisha for years. He'd seen miracles. He'd seen God send angels. He'd send all these things happen to Elisha. And Elisha, I'm sure, spent a lot of time discipling him. But for just a moment, he allowed sin to creep in. He took the bait. He ran after Naaman. He ran after Naaman for money, for, for, for gifts. 1 Peter 5.8 says in the Amplified Version, Be sober or meaning well-balanced and self-disciplined. Be alert and cautious at all times that the enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, fierce and hungry, seeking someone to devour. Again, in the Amplified in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands, he stands firm, meaning immune to temptation, being overconfident, self-righteousness, be, be careful. Be careful. Take care that he does not fall into some sin or condemnation. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 God has chosen us as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness 
into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. The Lord God Almighty. Just as these young people had to make decisions this last week, I hope and pray that right now that God is confronting with you about decisions. Where are you at with God? Are you right where God wants you? Are you serving the Lord right now on your daily daily walk with Him and the reading of the Scriptures and this time in prayer and your faithfulness to His call where you're working, in your home, with your family? Are you faithful to the Lord there? We're all called. Remember back in, uh, in John, he says, you know, even as the Father sends me, I send you. a high calling that Jesus gave us. Even so, so send I you. A high calling. If you've never asked Jesus into your heart, I encourage you to do so today. Pastor loves to use the, the acronym uh, ABCs. Admit you're a sinner. We all sin. We've talked about that, how the, in Isaiah 53. There's nothing good in us. we got no place to boast before the Lord. There's nothing in us that God could say, oh, okay, you're good enough, all it takes is help this, and every one of us is, is rotten to the core. But only by the grace of God and work of the Holy Spirit can He transform us into a new creation. Secondly, believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that He died for our sin, and He rose again to give us life. And thirdly, confession. Ask Jesus to forgive you and invite him into your life as Lord and Savior today. It's not hard. It's not complicated. You don't have a set pattern of a prayer you have to say. Just talk to God. Just open your heart up to him and let him speak into your life. Just tell him how it is. Tell him about your doubts and your fears. It's okay. God can handle that. And if you're mad at God for something, tell him you're mad at him. He already knows that, right? He already knows you're mad at him or not. Just be honest with God, because Jesus will meet you right at that point. He will meet you right there where you're at. So I challenge you today, open your hearts to him. Let the Holy Spirit speak to him. As the guys come up to, I don't know if they have another song or not, but as they come up to share, use this time of, for meditation and self-reflection. And right there where you're at, in your seat, make a decision for Jesus. If not for salvation... Make a decision to recommit to Him and that you're going to walk with Him closely and you're going to be that standard and that, that measurement that those young people can look to and say, hey, I want to be like Him. He loves the Lord and He shows it in every aspect of His life.